The reading is taken from Luke chapter 19, beginning at the 11th verse, the parable of the Minar. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minar. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his pastor replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his minar away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray about that before we try and understand it. <laughs> Lord, please. Uh, take my words and the wisdom that you have given to me to help us to understand that this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, you know, Jesus loved to tell stories, didn't he? You know, guess how many parables there are recorded in the Gospels. Have a sort of guess. You don't have to mention it. Mention it to your neighbour. Go on. How many do you think? 10, 20, 30, 40, 50? Mm-hmm. Haven't a clue, have you? 30. The answer is 30. And they are almost all of them uh, are in the first three Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so called the synoptic Gospels, because they all shared some common base material. Not many in John. I think there's just one in John, uh, which is why lots of people like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they like stories, don't they? And a parable is no more than a story, and it was Jesus' primary means of teaching. Now, how many of you can think, oh, I remember a story that somebody, you know, can't remember the sermon, but you can remember the, the peg on which to hang the truth. 
And Jesus knew about that. He was a great storyteller. He had a gift also for seeing the spiritual in the everyday. And I think that teaches us something about the nature of prayer to Jesus. Prayer was not something which was done, he sort of stopped his daily work and then prayed. He actually saw God at work and also the evil one at work in daily life. And so he could just draw um, parables, stories from nature, from relationships. And here we have a story. And I think um, Jesus has a lot to teach us, if I may say so. I agree with him. (laughs) On the nature of story. So I'm going to uh, try and follow in Jesus' example and tell you a story which I hope uh, you enjoy. This is a story of um, four uh, brothers um, uh, who, uh, none of them got married, they all lived lived at home, um, and they were all in the police force, and they all drove squad cars. It's really important that you remember that. They drove squad cars, and every morning, without fail, their mother would say to them, who wants eggs for breakfast? And do you know what they replied? One by one. Me, ma, me, ma, me, ma, me, ma. <laughs> so we moved from the four me, ma's to the ten me, <laughs> I have to say, this is not one of Jesus' best known stories, and nor would I choose to preach on it. And if I were the vicar and gave this to one of my lay readers, I too uh, would escape to the Alps. <laughs> but here's the story, and everything in the Bible is the Word of God, so there's things for us to learn. Okay, so here's the story. A rich man, who's soon to be a very powerful man, he goes on an, an, an extended trip to be crowned king. Most of his people hate him and send word ahead that they oppose this coronation. In his absence, he assigns to ten of his servants a mina each. A mina is worth about three months' salary. So taking the average salary today in the UK, that's about £7,500. And they're each given a mina and told to invest it. Two of them take the risk of investing their master's money, and they earn handsome rewards. A third servant is afraid to take the risk, so he puts the money in a safe place. It earns absolutely no return at all. And when the master returns, he has become king of the whole country, and he rewards the two servants who've made money for him, promoting them to high positions of their own. He punishes the servant who kept the money safe but was unproductive and we hear nothing more about the other seven, by the way, uh, of uh, those who were given minas. And then he commands that all who opposed him be killed in his presence. Nice, friendly story, eh? And most improbable, whoever heard of somebody going abroad to be made a king? And whoever heard of this sort of uh, environment? But the interesting thing is that those who are listening to Jesus would have known exactly what he was referring to because it was not an entirely fictional story. 
You see, when Herod the Great died, shortly after Jesus' birth, his three sons were all vying to be appointed by the Roman authorities to succeed him. One of them, whose name was Archelaus, was particularly brutal and it is said historically proven that he killed 3,000 people, had 3,000 people killed in the temple because they were opposing uh, his appointment as king. That's why it says in Matthew chapter 2, in the story of the uh, uh, early years of Jesus, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, the um, lower end of where high politics was being played, where he might be safe. Now, Archelaus then left for Rome to argue his case in front of Caesar, the person with the final authority. Also there were his opponents, the Jews who didn't like him and his brothers who thought that they should be there in his place. But he wins a partial victory and Caesar appoints him not as king, note, but as governor because even Caesar realized that this might be a rather bad egg to put in charge of most of the old kingdom uh, that uh, his father Herod had dealt with, including Judea, the prime area. So you see, here's another story of Jesus seeing in daily life an illustration that can be used for the benefit of learning a spiritual truth. And passing by way, it's quite remarkable that Jesus compares God, who we believe to be the king, to Archelaus, who was an outright scoundrel, loved by nobody. So I think it's part of Jesus' sense of humor that he uses that parallel in this story. Okay, the easy bit is telling you the story. The difficult bit is saying, well, why is it there? Why did Jesus tell this story? Is perhaps he saying that God uses his power willfully and cruelly like someone like Archelaus? Is he saying that capitalism is God's favored economic system and you must make as much money as you can with uh, the opportunities that you have? Is it that entry to heaven depends on what we do what a success we make out of life rather than what is done for us? Probably not. So what are we left with? Well, a clue to the answer to that question comes in the very first verse of our reading, probably one where you were just warming up and you missed it because you were getting onto the story. But this is what uh, uh, the, um, uh, Luke says. Jesus told them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. I'll repeat that. Jesus told them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So there's something in this story about waiting 
and using the time that we have now to the best effect. It shows that the kingdom of God will not be seen in its fullness until Jesus returns to claim his kingdom. And it tells us that we need to live in the present to seize the day rather than to long for the future to become the present and miss out what's going on day by day. Now, we don't fully know why God didn't wind up the world when Jesus wiped the human slate clean at Calvary. What we do know is that he wants us to use the time between the first and the second coming of Jesus to good effect, to build the kingdom, to create the good news across the world. And just as we don't know why God has chosen to wait so long before bringing the world to its conclusion, we don't know why he chooses to wait when we have personal uh, agendas that we keep praying for to come to an end and he doesn't do anything about it, apparently. All we do know is that waiting is characteristic of the way God works. So there's one message. The second message is, it's a story about trust, about having faith that though the sovereign, the one whom we are backing in the election for the next king, that though he is absent, he is going to come back. He will return. Just think about the supporters of Archelaus. There were three brothers who were all fighting uh, for their right to become the next supremo. Huge risk if you vote for the wrong person, if you're seen to be backing the wrong person. There was a need to trust that Jesus is coming back again. And that's both a comfort and a challenge to us. It's a comfort because there's so much evidence of chaos and despondency that we might otherwise lose all hope. But we believe that however uncertain things are at the present, in the future, in the end, God will triumph. So it's a comfort. But it's also a challenge because he has left each of us with a seed of his kingdom, something of the future in us that he wants us to use to good effect. He expects us to put it to good use. That's the very words taken from the parable about the minas. Use it to put it to good use. So there's waiting, there's something about trust, and thirdly, there's something about risk as well. We don't know how the one servant got a tenfold return on his investment. Sounds like some shady business probably there. If you make that sort of money, it's probably not all legit. We don't know what happened to the other seven as well. Did they invest and maybe lose their money? That's, in a sense, not material to the story. What we do know is that the one who was condemned, the one who didn't get good marks, was the one who just sat on what he had and didn't do anything with it. Ducking for cover, doing nothing with what we've got, Wrapping it in a cloth, that's the one thing that's not okay. We need to speculate 
to accumulate. That's what the investors say. We need to put at risk what we have got with the reward potentially of getting more. But as we all know, some investments may go down as well as go up. And that's true of the kingdom as well. Now, unlike this story of the talents in Matthew, which is very, very similar, but got a a significantly different message, each of these ten people had exactly the same investment given to them. They each had one minar. And I think that says to us, it's not about our personal gifts that this story is about. It's about what each of us as Christians has, which is a personal relationship with the one who made us and a direct communication with God. And how we use it, regardless of our personal gifts and circumstances, is what's important to God. But the gifts we have received can't be ignored. We've each been given different skills, experiences in life, abilities, family connections, inherited wealth, social position, education. All those things are important and they are part of the minar that you and I have been given. Now it appears that the fall guy, servant number three, was not necessarily selfish or lazy. He wasn't keeping it to himself. He didn't spend the money on himself. What was his mistake? His mistake was to think that what he had been given wasn't worth a great deal. And so he thought, I won't do anything with it. I'll just keep it there and give it back at the end of the journey. Now, here's the question for us to reflect on this morning, which I believe is the main core of this story Is there something about me that's not getting a proper return? Is there money or property, material goods, that are lying idle that God calls me to invest in others? Is there time in my week which I'm clinging to for fear that otherwise I won't be free for the things that I choose to do. Or on the other hand, that I'll be overwhelmed by the needs of others if I offer them a little. Is there a talent that I've got that could help others that is lying dormant? Have I had an experience in life that hasn't been put to good use by sharing that experience with others? Is there an understanding of God that has been given to me that I've not shared with someone else for fear of causing offence or ridicule or rejection? In Luke's account, the next verse after this story It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And the question is, am I, are you, ready to follow him to Jerusalem? That's it.